We are in that study that is on the end times, that some of you have been joining us. Some of you may just join us this morning. Where we are right now is we're talking about this idea of the Lord coming back. Some of you have already done some of the research and you know about L. Ron Hubbard. How many of you have heard of him before? Okay, he is a cultist who back in the 40s, he was an individual who was involved in Satan worship. He went into the military. He was diagnosed as being schizophrenic and was released from the military. And shortly after that, he wrote some science fiction books that became popular. And then he wrote a religious doctrine a belief, a system that was called Dianetics that has become a major church in America that's been recognized as a church. Their headquarters are down in Clearwaters, Florida. And in his teachings, he basically said he can teach you how to mentally, spiritually, mentally overcome any illness, any disease, even death. And you can overcome any ailment in your, in your body or in your mind. You don't need any doctors and you don't, definitely don't need anybody like a psychiatrist. This makes sense coming from a schizophrenic. And so what he did is he's got this teaching that you can evolve, if you follow him, you can evolve into a thetan or a god. And his other teachings basically said you'll come back reincarnated. Um, the idea that you can, you, you, if you follow him, you've got the truth. If you disagree with him, you're an enemy. And any enemy of the church or of him as an individual, you are fair game to be destroyed reputation-wise, economically, any way, shape, or form. And so his followers can do that and they would be in the right to destroy somebody. Uh, his teachings went on as he was teaching, I should say, he went on, deserted two of his wives at different times he was married, deserted both of his, his first wives and their children while he was leading this religious system. Um, he had his military records doctored up so that it looked like he earned medals, which he hadn't. He, um, he got in trouble with the United States government and other governments. So he bought a boat and he went out to sea and stayed in international waters for years. The way that he filled the crew on this boat is he would get recruits, teenagers, males, females, who were from families of people who were Scientologists. And so he would take your children and he would offer them the opportunity, the privilege to be on this boat with the church leader and he would become their parent. This is just weird, okay? Just kind of creepy when you think about it. And so all this went on for a period of time. He, uh, despite his teachings, he got sick, okay? And he then ended up uh, after an illness, but he went in hibernation. Nobody saw him for an extended period of time because he was ill, but it didn't fit with his teachings. So he was in hibernation for a period of time. He suffered a stroke. And after three days, they finally announced that he, they didn't say he died. He left his body to go and do more astral studies, and so he went into the astral realm, and he's doing the studies, and he's doing further research. The house that I show you on this is one of six homes that the Church of Scientology have built, fully staffed. Every day, somebody lays out clothes, prepares meals for L. Ron Hubbard coming back. Nobody else lives in the homes, but they have them staffed. He's going to come back one day. They fully expect it. They lay out in the laundry. They do everything. They prepare it every day because they believe he's coming back. Now, I'm telling you he's not coming back. Okay. But then you may say, wait a minute. You're going to talk about your leader, Jesus Christ, and you're going to say he's coming back. How come you would believe in Jesus coming back, but you wouldn't believe in L. Ron Hubbard? Because Jesus is a whole lot different than L. Ron Hubbard. Okay. Here, let me show you. Jesus did miracles. 
L. Ron Hubbard never did that. Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life. Jesus humbled himself and served others. L. Ron Hubbard was, you serve me. Jesus had a conduct that was morally correct and inclined in line with all of Scripture. No contradiction. Jesus' message was one of loving God and loving others, not destroying others, but even loving your enemies. Jesus' message led him to voluntarily give his life to serve other people by dying for them, not having them come and wait on him. Jesus gave his life to pay for our sins, this sonless one who was the, the, the God Almighty. Jesus then rose from the dead three days later, and he was seen by hundreds that here he was alive with a body that, that was the same body he had before, glorified, but one that they talked with, they walked with, they ate with. Jesus' Jesus's teachings have changed lives for generations after generations. I believe in Jesus because Jesus is the Son of God and he said he's coming back. In fact, the Word of God gives so many different passages that talk about him coming back. You go through the New Testament and it's filled with the idea. When Jesus was speaking, he kept on saying, I'm coming again. When he was passed off the scene, ascended to heaven, others kept on saying he's coming again. Multiple passages in the New Testament talk about his coming. You go to the Old Testament and there was passages that talked about him coming and then leaving and coming again. There's passages that talk about his second coming when he sets up a kingdom. We know he hasn't done that yet. We look around. We know this isn't heaven on earth. So he's coming back. In fact, for every single passage and reference in the Old Testament that spoke of him coming the first time, and you all understand that. He came, birthed as a baby in Bethlehem, lived in Galilee, Nazareth, came and did his ministry. For every single verse that talks about that first coming, there are eight verses that talk about him coming again in the future. The Bible's just filled with this idea that Jesus is coming back. He never contradicted it. None of the preachers who were there, the prophets, the ones who knew and walked with God and had that direct revelation, none of them said it's not true. In fact, you go through the New Testament, you go through passages after passages that talk about him coming again, him coming again, that he's coming soon, the Son of Man is coming, he is coming again. You don't know the hour, you don't know the time, but he's coming again. The Son of Man comes when he comes in glory. This same Jesus that was taken up into heaven, so shall he come. And we keep on going. God shall send his Christ. So you wait for the coming of the Lord. Judge nothing before the time of the coming of the Lord. As odd as he eat this bread and drink this cup, you just show the Lord's death till he comes. When Christ, who is your life, appears, the Savior is going to come. And he says, Are you, you're the crown of rejoicing at his coming. The Lord himself shall descend. The coming of our Lord with all of his saints. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We even read, we're waiting for that glorious appearing of the coming of the Lord of Jesus Christ. There's laid up a crown for all those who are waiting for his coming. He will appear a second time. The coming of the Lord is at hand. Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 saints. Little children, we'll, you know, we, when he appears a second time, we keep on going. When he shall appear, we will be like him. Jesus said several times in the book of Revelation, I'm coming soon. Behold, I'm coming soon. Surely I'm coming soon. Do you get the idea he's coming back? He said he's coming back. Now here's the problem that we have. When we start examining those passages, scriptures, and going in-depth beyond the idea that he's coming again, we start saying, okay, when is he coming? What's he going to do? Where is he going to come? And then we find something. 
We find that some verses will say this, that he is coming to earth, and some say he's only coming to the clouds. Do we have contradictions? Okay, or is it that some have responded and said, wait a minute, when it talks about him coming to, re, to get his saints and take them to heaven, but other passages talk about him coming with his saints from heaven, which one is it? Some say, well, we'll spiritualize it. We'll say that Jesus is already here. This is heaven on earth right now. Okay, and this is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God being run by Democrats and Republicans. Really. Okay. So, or there's this option. And I believe this is the biblical option. There's two parts to his future coming. There's two different phases to his coming. Let me see if I can point it out just quickly. There's this comments. He comes to the earth. He comes to the clouds. Contradiction or two phases. One time he'll come and stay on the earth, but it's clear that when he comes to the clouds, he's going to return to heaven. He, after he comes, he judges the lost. After he comes, he judges the believers. Uh, his coming is going to be very gradual, coming down on a horse. Everybody's going to see it. His coming is described as in an atomus, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, so sudden. So there's some that say there's many signs, the Bible says, there's many signs preceding his coming, but then... There's no signs preceding one of his comings. In fact, in the Old Testament, it is spoken of many, many times of his coming. But when it talks about another phase of his coming, the one we're going to look at this morning, it calls it a mystery. A mystery in the Bible is something not previously discussed at length. Something that's just being revealed. And that is done in 1 Thessalonians 4 and in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where they use that term. So it's got to be not a conflict, there's two phases. There's the idea that he comes, when he comes he's going to focus on the Jews, but at the other one, the other phase, he focuses on the bride. He comes to rescue the Jews, he comes to rescue the bride. He comes as a king and takes over, he comes as a groom to take his bride to his home. Just like Jews would typically. The groom would show up, grab, grab the bride, take the bride and go to their father's house, which Jesus predicted. I will come and receive you unto myself, take you to my father's house where I'm preparing the mansions, John 14. The idea he descends from heaven with his angels and saints, but then we read elsewhere that the saints are taken away to live with him. That should be 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. After he comes, creation is going to be corrected. Everything is going to be changed. But in the other phase, when he comes, creation is going to get much worse after that. There's this thought. When he comes, bad days are, are all done. But then in the other phase, when he comes, bad days, the worst of all days, are just beginning. What I have on the left-hand side is what we refer to as the second coming of Jesus to earth. That which was predicted by the angels that said the same Jesus will, uh, will come back in the same manner and come back to the Mount of Olives. That will happen at the end of the tribulation. The other one on the right hand is what we refer to as the rapture, where Jesus is going to come in the first phase, and he's going to come to the clouds. It is described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and that's the text we want to look at. In 1 Thessalonians 4, the word rapture, now some of you are going to say, oh, no, 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 it can't be true. Because the idea of rapture, the word never appears in the New Testament. That is true. That is absolutely true. In your English Bible, it doesn't appear. Now, let's go back to the language it was originally written. The word is harpazo. We shall be caught up. 
to be in the clouds. The word meant to be snatched away, see suddenly, to be rescued. Now, when they were translating the Bible, the Bible wasn't translated in English only. That would be arrogant of us to think that ours was the only language. The Bible was translated into different languages. One of the first languages the Bible was translated into was Latin. And when it was translated into Latin, in this verse, for the word harpazo, they used the Latin word repair, which was the same word, the same concept. And that root word, as they were writing commentaries and Bible, Bible uh, explanations, they used and referred to this as the snatching away or the repair, and it became, in our English, just translated the rapture. That's where the term came from. And again, the term doesn't show up in the Bible. It's specifically the word rapture. That doesn't mean we should deny it. Let me, let me throw this out. The Trinity isn't in the Bible. That word is never used, but the concept is... Let me throw this out. The word grandparent is never found in the Bible. That would get rid of a lot of us, okay, if they're not true. Okay, so just because a word doesn't show up in the English Bible doesn't mean that the teaching isn't there. And that's, a, that's an erroneous way of, of, of approaching any kind of Bible study. So we approach and say, okay, where do we find this teaching? Well, we're going to look at mostly 1 Thessalonians 4. This evening we're going to look in more into 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that explains it. But this morning we're going to look 1 Thessalonians 4 and then also 1 Corinthians 15. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, he, what he does is he mentions several different ideas. Okay, let me set the scene, then read it. What's happening in this text is there are people who are in Thessalonica that Paul has, has already ministered to, and they send a letter to him, and they say, Paul, when you were here, you were telling us about Jesus coming again, and you were telling us that we would get our resurrection bodies, and he would come, and, and we would be taken to heaven. Since you came and preached that, Paul, some of our church members have died. Some of our relatives, some of our family members have died. What's going to happen to them? When Jesus comes back and he's going to take us to heaven, are they going to be left behind? When will they get their resurrection bodies? Will they be forgotten? So in writing to them and explaining, he writes these words. Verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 4. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep or dead that you sorrow not, even as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which are dead in Jesus, God will bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. As he's going through this one paragraph and explaining this doctrine in depth and this, this phase of his future coming, highlight just a few thoughts. He highlights several different points. That I'm going to put them down just for alliteration. I'm going to start with ours. He talks about the revelation of God. Maybe you want to put the reality of this truth. He says very clearly, he says, I want you to understand, this is what we're saying is by the word of the Lord. This is not something I've come up with. It may sound amazing, but it came from the mind and the mouth of God. This is the word of the Lord. This is not make-believe. This is not what somebody else is teaching. This fits exactly what Jesus said in John 14. Remember the night that Jesus was saying goodbye to the disciples? 
And they were all upset. And he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also. And then he went on and talked about the future. He talked about his coming again. Do you remember? In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will what? I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Now in the midst of, this, of these two verses that we put up here, I left out a phrase, a very important phrase. Do you know what it is? Do you remember? He said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. And then he goes on, he says, I go to prepare mansions for you. If it were not, I would have. Yeah, he's saying this is a truth. This is a reality. This is not make-believe. So we have emphasized in this text the revelation of God, the reality of this event. Number two emphasis is the return of Jesus Christ. He says in this text, if you look at the passage, the Lord himself very strong, very emphatic, shall descend from heaven. In other words, this is Jesus coming personally, not sending an angel and an angel only. We read already in the book of Revelation, during the tribulation, angels are doing a lot of his bidding. But in this one, at this return, he himself is coming personally. But it says very clearly, when he comes, he's only going so far. He will leave heaven, and it says that he will come in the clouds. We will meet him in the air. So he's not coming all the way to planet earth. He's going to come to the clouds, to the stratosphere, from heaven. And then we have this idea that he himself is going to do it. Now when he comes, there's accompanying sounds. There's three of them. Did you catch them in the text? There's three different accompanying sounds to Jesus coming. There is going to be a shout. Some of you have a different word in your translations. You might have the word a command. Yes? No? Do you have a command, any of you? Okay, that's what it is, literally, in the original language. It is the idea of a, a shout, a loud order from somebody, a superior to uh, an underling to say, do this or do that. I don't know what the shout is. But I do know that when he stood by the tomb of Lazarus, what did he say to Lazarus? Come forth. Okay, maybe as Jesus is coming to the clouds, he says, come here. Like you say to your kids. The only difference is... We're going to listen. Okay. We're going to come here. We're going to go. Whatever he says, I don't know. But there's a command. There's also another sound. Did you catch the other one? The voice of an archangel. Okay. What is that archangel doing or saying? I don't know. Neither do you. Okay. The idea is that this, is he praising or is he saying, you know, old people here, young people there, you know, as they're getting, I don't know. I, this, the latter is silly. Okay. I, but the angel's there. Then there's a third sound. The trump, the trump, which is in the you know, Romans at the time, they'd use a trumpet to rally the troops, to give direction, to follow a command during the course of the battle. The Jews would use it to announce an assembly or uh, the, the beginning of a festival or some announcement. Da, 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 listen, everybody. We don't know exactly who's blowing the trumpet, what tune they're going to play, but obviously this is, a, this is an announcement. This is something that's great celebration that Jesus is in the clouds and we're supposed to come and meet him. So we have the return of Jesus Christ. Then you have the third thought that's emphasized here, the resurrection of the deceased, the deceased saints. He says very clearly, the dead in Christ shall rise first. The idea that he has is that, that Jesus is going to 
restructure, bring their bodies back, whatever, however this works, that all, you know, giving up the sea, giving up the dead or the grave or the urn, you know, all of a sudden it rattles, shakes, and the disappears. Okay. But he's going to raise... Now remember, this is their question. What about our dead relatives? They're going to be resurrected. That's what he's getting at. They're going to be all of a sudden coming out of the graves, coming out of wherever they've dissolved into. They're going to rise first. Their bodies will be restored to life. This will be when they get what the term is resurrection bodies. That all of a sudden their bodies will put on immortality. A body that cannot be sick anymore. A body that is like the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. That even as Jesus rose, we read that in verse 13. Even as Jesus rose, he is going to raise the dead in Christ. That they will put on these new bodies like his body. And they will come up and then they will reunite with their spirit that has already gone to heaven. And so the body and the spirit will be in the clouds, with, will be reunited and put back together in the clouds with Jesus Christ, who has come from heaven. And you say, well, man, that just, that just sounds, this sounds you know, wilder than Hollywood. Okay, this just sounds phenomenal. It is. It is, but it's God. Okay, let me, let me remind you. With God, all things are possible. Can God do phenomenal things with bodies? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. What do you make your body out of? Our bodies, for our, our grandparents. Okay, out of the dust of the earth and breathe life into it. What did he do with making a body when it came to Mary? He just bypassed all the normal processes and created a body with just the woman, just the virgin only. What did he do with his own body? He came out of the grave. Came out of the grave that was a real body. It sat, it ate, it, it walked, the people could touch it, spent 40 days, hundreds of people saw him, and, and yet at the same time, this body didn't need to open doors, it could go through the doors, which gives us some, you know, some concept of what these bodies are like. And so they'll get the resurrect bodies. The truth of the, uh, that he's getting at is God's not forgetting any of the saints. God's not forgetting any of the relatives who have already deceased. And at that time that this is written, that was very important. Our relatives will be resurrected. They will not be forgotten. Then he highlights the removal of all living Christians by making this comment. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with the Lord in the, you know, in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. So then we are all of a sudden removed. We are taken away. We are snatched suddenly away from this earth. Now again, take it back and says, okay, if the trumpet were to blow and the angel were to shout and all of a sudden it happened in about two minutes, how would the roof of this building look? Okay. Well, if we have that resurrected body by Christ, like Christ, it's no problem. Okay. So we're not going to be prevented from being raptured, you know, by a ceiling. We don't have to live outdoors all the time. Okay. And it's okay to ride in your car without leaving the top down. Okay. He's talking about this idea, and it says, then we will return with Christ to wherever he's going. So shall we ever be with the Lord. This is the moment that our bodies are changed. This, take 1 Corinthians 15. Head over there. Hold your finger here. Go to 1 Corinthians 15. A parallel passage that explains a little bit more, but you're going to see the similarities. They are so obvious that nobody can miss it. In 1 Corinthians 15, at the end, at, towards the end of the chapter, he says, behold, get this. Listen, everybody. He says, behold, I show you something that wasn't discussed in depth before. A mystery. 
I show you a mystery. We shall not all die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, the trump shall sound, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed as well. What's that sound like? First Thessalonians 4. The trumpet, the changing of the bodies, the dead rising first, then we also get changed. For this corruptible, this body that is earthly, must put on incorruption. This mortal body has to put on immortality in order to live in the realm of heaven. Our bodies need to be changed. And so what we have out of this text is this passage that parallels tells us that when this removal takes place, it's going to happen so quick. He says, in a moment, an atomoy, the okay, smallest amount of time, in the twinkling, a glance, a glink, quicker than you blink, in the blink of an eye. So if you're saying, well, I'm going to wait until I see so-and-so in the pew in front of me as they get taken up, I'm going to grab on. Okay, you're not going to have that moment. It's going to be that quick. Uh, I'm going to... I'm going to get my cell phone ready, and I'm going to put this. I'm going to get lots of hits. It, it, you aren't going to be able to record it. It's so fast, and he says it happens to all the believers. All the believers, as he goes on in this text, and, and this fits in, a, in America, the military idea, leave no man behind. Okay? Well, Jesus is saying, I'm leaving no man behind. I'm not leaving any of my children. We already read, we shall all be changed. We've already read in the idea, them which are asleep who have died, that they shall be resurrected, that we which are alive, so shall we ever be with the Lord. In fact, we're going to talk about it tonight, what happens when we all get taken up into heaven. There is an appearance before the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, and he highlights again, we must all, every one of us, every man's work, all of us who are, who are believers, and he talks about that whole idea. And by the way, when he is writing this, he's writing it to a church group, first, uh, the first Corinthians is written to Corinthians. In this church group, Bob, the, the Apostle Paul said, some of you are babes, some of you are carnal, but we all shall be changed. His point being that no matter what our level of maturity spiritually, if we're part of God's family, we're getting raptured when he raptures us. None of us are going to be left behind. We shall all be changed, even if you've just been saved a week, or you've been saved already, you know, decades. When the rapture happens, all true believers will be taken away. And so that's a very clear truth. Then he, he mentions Paul, and he's talking about this happening, this rescuing, this removal of Christians. Paul anticipated, we'll come back to this in a few minutes. He anticipated this was going to happen in his lifetime. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up. And he keeps on using this we idea. Paul thought it would happen at any moment in his life. But I, I, I digress for a moment. Let's go back to the fifth and the sixth idea of this text. There's going to be a reunion with Christ, with Christ and with all Christians. What he says is that we will to be with them together with them. That is our, our, our relatives who have died. Previous saints. And meet the Lord in the air. So there's going to be this reunion that says that we will never again be separated. We will be with the loved ones. Some of you, for you, some of you, this, this has tremendous, tremendous impact. Some of you have buried children, spouses, parents, brothers and sisters who are born again. You will see them again. You will see them. This isn't, this isn't, okay, farewell or, you know, never. This is basically when we say, say to them as we, as we move on in our life, our comment is, we'll see you later. This is the later. That we'll be reunited with them and with Jesus Christ, never to be separated again. There is a sixth thought here. 
the reassurances of the doctrine. He says at the very last verse of this, te- of this text, he says, Wherefore, do what with one another because of this truth? Comfort one another. Comfort, encourage one another. The encouragement is, is there, and I've given you several reasons why I find it encouraging. It's not in order of importance. It just comes to mind. We get reunited with the loved ones. That has got to be encouraging. That there's going to be a reunion. And by the way, just, somebody just asked me this week who has just gone through a severe loss. They asked the question, when I get to heaven, when we get raptured, will we know our loved ones? Sure. Why wouldn't you? When people go to heaven or hell, they don't forget their life. Do you remember the rich man in hell? He remembered he had family. Send somebody to my brothers. He remembered. They even said, do you remember in your lifetime? When we go to heaven, we don't forget everything. That all of a sudden our memory is totally erased. When we get to heaven, we still will have recall of what life was like. In fact, in Revelation 6, those who are martyred, they are saying, Jesus, when will they're under the altar? When will you avenge our, our death, our persecution? They remember it. And, and to say, well, will we, will we recognize people? When Jesus is at the Mount of Transfiguration, he, is, he is all of a sudden has two different people on his sides. Do any of you remember who they were? Okay, Elijah and Moses. And the disciples recognized them, but they had never met them before. And they didn't look them up on, you know, on the internet because Al Gore wasn't born before that time. Okay? They, didn't, they, they, they knew it. They, so when we get to heaven, will we recognize people? Yes. Yes. Will we remember relationships? Yes. Will they all operate the same way? No. But will we have memory and recall? They will be improved. Things will be better. But we'll be reunited. And we will know and we will meet. I think this is the fascinating part of heaven. We're going to meet ancestors that we've never met before. It's just going to be an incredible time. We might see, here's, here's something that's comforting. We might see Jesus at any moment. We might never have to go through another presidential election. We might never go through another pandemic. Oh, that didn't get any amens. Okay. okay. We may not have to go through the process of death. That's encouraging. We don't, as believers in Jesus Christ, we don't say this boastfully, we don't fear dying, or the death, I should say. We don't fear death in the sense of, okay, what happens afterwards? We know we're going to be with the Lord. But we do, we do hesitate going through the process, the dying process. So much so that we still go to doctors, don't we? We still say, hey, I'll take some treatment. I, I, don't, I don't want to die and go through the process. I would just rather, you know, I'd rather, do that old phrase, I would rather look for the upper taker rather than the undertaker, okay? And so there's that concept that we, that's comforting. It's comforting to know that we're not going to be forgotten. Some of you here have had this experience. You've been forgotten. Your family forgot you someplace. Your family forgot some special event in your life. And, it's, you know, and it, it happens, and you've gotten over it. And those of us who our parents forgot our birthday when we were 14 and 15 years old, we don't remember it anymore. We just bring it up from time to time. We will not be forgotten by Jesus Christ. He will not forget any of us. And then when this happens, here's comfort. Comfort for those of you who are in that age bracket where, where my wife and I are, that getting out of bed is a chore. It's comforting to know these bodies are going to be changed. 
There will be no aches and pains. We won't need doctors in, in the future. No more paying insurance policies. Okay. That's comforting. So we have it all together. Now, here's the problem. For some of you, you say, okay, I, I believe this. I believe there's going to be a time where Jesus is coming back. But pastor, I saw on the internet, I saw a book written that said Jesus is coming back and the rapture will take place during the tribulation. Are we going to have to live through the tribulation? Um, I read a book, I saw an article that said Jesus will rapture all of us at the end of the tribulation. Pastor, have you ever seen this before? Yeah, I have. I've read the books. I've read the articles. Every time I go through a series, just like I did this time, I'll sit down, I'll reread some of those books, I'll read the articles that so many of you give me, and say, have you ever heard of this? Yes, we've heard of those things. They have been, those multiple different viewpoints of when the rapture takes place have been around for a long time. Those multiple different views, are they held by, by good, born-again people? Yes, they are. There are some good Bible teachers that are good Christians who are Bible teachers who, that they will teach a different viewpoint of when it happens and they might have a verse or two that they will use that helps support that doctrine. Usually they have more than two verses. And is there confusion in Christianity about it? Yes, 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 yes. So what do we believe? Well, here's your options, okay? Here's your time chart. Jesus is coming back at the end of the worst time of history. It starts with Antichrist signing the treaty, and this whole period is called the Tribulation. In the first three and a half years, it's kind of decent for the Jews. Then Antichrist will, as we talked about last week, empowered by Satan, take over the mark of the beast. And the second three and a half years will be the worst time. And all, it just gets worse, worse, worse. And the world would destroy itself unless Jesus came back. Well, there are those who say this. Okay, and then there's the seal and the judgment. There are those who say he will rapture us at the end of this time. In other words, he's going to take us to heaven and we're going to come right back down with him. Okay, and there's, they have a verse, two that they will point to. Then there are some that says, no, it's going to happen in the middle of the tribulation. He will come and take us to heaven at the midpoint. It's called mid-tribulational rapture. A variation of it, and this week I read about three different variations of the exact time. It's called pre-wrath. One, the three different authors didn't totally agree at when it actually happens. Is it right at the middle? Is it just before? Um, and one of them who seemed to make more, most of the three cents in what he was saying said it's okay before the seal and the trumpets and it's right towards the end of the sealed judgments. But I don't hold to any of those. I think all of those, those, uh, those views have holes in them that are really big and not consistent with the theological pattern that we call dispensationalism. And so the view that I purport and our church holds to by its doctrine is called pre-trib. We believe the rapture happens before the tribulation begins. And that we won't be in the tribulation. We will be rescued sometime before the tribulation starts. And the reason we do hold this view is because of these multiple reasons that I want to run through really fast. Okay? One is this. It's found in Revelation chapter 3. 
verse 10, written to the churches that he's talking. He says, I will keep you from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon the whole earth to try them that dwell upon the earth. Notice several thoughts very quickly. Notice he speaks of a future time of testing. Notice it's worldwide testing. Notice it is a set time. The hour indicates a a set time, a scheduled time, a time that is limited. It is also already known by the readers, something that they've heard about, they've had explained to them by the Lord, by others. And he says, you aren't going to be in it. He doesn't say, I'm going to go through it with you like Daniel's friends, the Son of Man, showed up and walked through the fiery furnace. That is not what this text says. I will keep you out of a worldwide period of time tribulation. You won't live there. So I take that verse and go, you know, I only know of one worldwide testing that is still to come that is already timetabled, that it has a set period of time. It's called the tribulation. And we're told we're not going to be there. I add to it this passage, 2 Thessalonians 2. You nearby? 2 Thessalonians 2. Here's a text that we looked at here about two weeks in the evenings. We looked at, and in this text, he's answering questions so the believers are saying, hey, are we already in the tribulation? Remember in chapter in chapters, uh, the first book, he had answered questions about the, the rapture and then the, tribu- and then the tribulation. And they say, wait a minute, are we already there? Nero's on the throne, we're being persecuted, are we living in the tribulation? And he writes and says, hey, listen, let no man deceive you. That this day will not come except, and he gives two instances that have to come before the tribulation. You know, before you're living in it. He says two things that have to take place. There's got to be a great apostasy and the man of sin needs to be revealed. That is the beginning of the tribulation. You're not going to be in it until these things happen. Okay, and so he talks about, and by the way, the man of sin in this text, he talks about who he is. The man of sin in the text, he's the one who exalts himself to be God, to be worshipped. He's the one that's consumed by Jesus Christ at his second coming. He's the one that Satan empowers. We looked at this. Who is this man? Oh, please, please. You've got to respond better than that. Okay, it's Antichrist. It's clearly Antichrist. And he's saying, he's saying, okay, now listen. The tribulation starts with Antichrist kicking it off, being revealed. But he makes this comment. He says, okay, what withholds, what keeps Antichrist from being revealed? Even though the mystery of iniquity... Sin, the stuff that he would purport, even though his, his idea of, of worshiping, not worshiping God is already happening in the world. What is keeping Antichrist from being revealed? Okay, and he goes on. The next verse is real. You've got you to mark your Bibles. Okay, if you have a Bible like I do that I, that I love my Bible, my King James Bible, I, I'm thrilled with it. You still got to mark this verse. You've got to mark down and make sure that you understand that when 1611 English doesn't always mean the same thing as 2021 English. Okay, and here's one of those, exa- well, those clear examples. Before Antichrist is revealed, he who now lets will continue to let until he be taken out of the way. Well, you and I, when we read the word let, we have the idea of, okay, things are, you know, go on, go on. But actually... In the 1611 English, it meant the opposite. And in the original language, he who holds back, he who keeps things down, he who is suppressing will continue to suppress until he's taken out of the way. 
So we could better translate it this way. He who restrains the iniquities that are going on will continue to restrain iniquities until he is taken out of the way. And and then you put it all together. Then that wicked one will be revealed. So the restrainer has to be removed before Antichrist is revealed. That's what this all is about. Okay, We know that the signing of the covenant is how Antichrist is revealed. He's not revealed until after the restrainer is, is taken out of the way. Once the restrainer is removed, then Antichrist can sign the treaty. The question you have to ask in this passage is, who's the restrainer? Suggestions are, it's angels. Because they do suggestions are government restrains evil. Are you kidding me? Okay. Suggestions that seems more biblical is believers restrain. And by the way, you do. You do have an impact. Yes, no. You've seen it. You might all of a sudden, you, you know, your friends are carrying on and then all of a sudden you come up and they might use a curse word. They go, oops, I'm sorry. Okay. You have that impact on a lot of people. They may not talk certain ways or do certain things when you're around. Around, So we believers have, to a degree, we restrain. I think this passage talks about somebody else. That's the restrainer. I think the restrainer is the Holy Spirit in this text. That the restrainer has always, throughout history, been opposing evil. And he's been, he's been trying to keep it down before the flood. And then he just, that's it. They've gone too far. He's worked in the life of Israel, but they kept on resisting him. When Jesus is in his last night, Jesus predicts, when I leave, the Holy Spirit will come. That, that, the idea isn't that the Holy Spirit is going to arrive for the very first time in all creation. Okay? What did he mean by the Holy Spirit would come? The Holy Spirit would do a unique ministry he hasn't done before. As the new comforter, here's what he's going to do that he never did prior to Pentecost. He's going to live within all believers. Back in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came and went on certain people. He even came and went on some individuals who weren't living for the Lord. But in this period where we're living right now, Jesus said, when, when I leave, I'm sending the comforter, and he is going to do something very unique. He is going to live within all of you who are born again, and he's going to be with you forever. This is called the baptism of the Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit. This is what every one of you is born again. The moment you got saved, the Holy Spirit moved in. You became the temple of God. And how long does that last? Until you go to heaven. Okay? That the Holy Spirit's living within your body. And it's a forever relationship with you. He also added this. The Holy Spirit will do a unique convicting work during this time period. He will convict the world of sin and work in a way that is convicting of righteousness and of Jesus Christ. And he will be, he will be opposing evil in a unique way. During this time period that he is working, living within believers. Which gets me to come to this thought, okay, Antichrist can't, you know, his revealing is when he signs the treaty. That'll mark the beginning of the tribulation. But he can't, that can't happen until the restrainer is first removed. The restrainer, the primary restrainer is the Holy Spirit. Secondary is us because the Holy Spirit's within us. And so as a result, once the Holy Spirit is removed, if he's with us and never leaves us, When he goes, we go. We go. He doesn't leave and leave us behind. That would be God deserting us. So it makes perfect sense. There's another thought. Okay, we are. If you look at First Thessalonians, 
First Thessalonians, and you look at verse 10, one, uh, chapter 1, verse 10. It says, the wait for the Son of Man from heaven, whom he has raised, which delivered us from the wrath to come. He says the same thing in chapter 5, which is a context about the tribulation. He says, God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. Okay, now some would look and say, well, okay, that, that's got to be hell. Okay, that is, that is, you know, I'm sure it's a possibility. I don't think that's what it's referring to. I think he's using terms in context where he's talking about the end times that the, the other passages, like the book of Revelation, talks about wrath. It describes that that's exactly what the tribulation is filled with. God's wrath. Fallenness and hideous from the face of him that sits on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb. For this is the great day of the, his wrath has come. Where we read the angels declaring, Fear God, the hour of his judgment is come. These same shall drink, all these people, the wine of the wrath of God, where we read elsewhere that it is stated that in them, the seven vials, is filled the wrath of God. He talks about, go you angels, pour out your, your vials that are filled with the wrath of God upon the earth. When he talks about the vials being poured out on the new, the new Babylon, the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. When he talks about the two prophets being killed, the people on earth will become angry that thy, thy wrath is come. I believe without a doubt that what he's talking about in these texts is saying we are not appointed unto wrath. We are not appointed to that time period where God's wrath is poured, poured upon the earth. We are taken away before then. In fact, I, the, if you look at the book of Revelation, the first two chapters are filled with references to the church, the church, the church. In the, uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3 talk about the church. All of a sudden, in the passages that talk about the tribulation, never once is the church mentioned. At all. So you look at that and then you add to it and you say, wait a minute. You go to Revelation chapters 4 and 5 and you say, okay, what's it picturing? Right at the end of chapter 5 begins the tribulation. Begins the seal judgment. Right before that, who is worthy to open up the, the seals? The lamb comes. The lamb sits on the throne. People start saying, thou art worthy. You are all powerful. The people who start that praise in chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, it describes them. And describes them as a group of people, some are at one point called 24 elders, and another verse right after it says that we were redeemed out of every kindred, tongue, people, and nations. Now some Bible scholars say, well this is the Jews. The Jews were not redeemed out of every kindred, tongue, tribe, and peoples. This is another group of people. It can't be Jews. It has to be Gentiles saved from all over. In fact, these same people say, you made us priests and kings. In 1 Peter, we are called priests and kings as the church. These same people have been given crowns, stephanoi. Stephanoi are laurel wreath crowns that are given to believers at the Bema seat, as we'll see this evening. This group has to be the church. It has to be us born-again people who are in heaven before the tribulation seals start. They start in chapter 6. So we're in, we're in heaven before that point. Chapter, uh, chapter uh, number 6. Revelation 19 pictures the bride. We are the bride. No doubt about it. Ephesians chapter 5. We are the bride of Christ. We are already in heaven before Jesus comes down to the earth at his second coming. 
When we are in heaven, it says in this text, not only are we in heaven celebrating the marriage feast, but we have also had time to make ourselves ready. He can't come back at, at the end of the tribulation. He can't come then, otherwise this passage is a contradiction. We have already been in heaven for a period of time. We've already celebrated the marriage feast of Jesus with Jesus Christ. And we've, we've had this period of time, how many, how long it is, I think it's seven years, that we've been in heaven already before the, 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 uh, Jesus comes back to earth. As you look here, if, if church is still left on the earth in the tribulation, then why does he appoint more witnesses, special witnesses? For centuries... God has said, you shall go into all the world and preach the gospel. It was given to the church. It was a commission given to the church. And it's been in place for, de- for centuries now. But all of a sudden in the tribulation, at that time period, when the tribulation starts, all of a sudden there is a new commission given to a new group. That new group is the 144,000. Then they're given to the two prophets. Then an angel is, is there. Okay, my conclusion is, why would he need all these new witnesses if we're still there? Oh, would it be helpful? No doubt. No doubt. I don't argue that. But why is there a new set of people commissioned? Why wouldn't, if, if God says, well, I'll just give extra help, why not do it now? And why does he need these extra people? It seems to indicate to fit in with the other passages, we're not there anymore. Then there's another, an eighth reason I'll give you, is this isn't a church age setting. The tribulation period is called Jacob's trouble. The tribulation period is, is, this, is determined for the Jews and Jerusalem, very clearly. Very clearly, this is a time period that is a reversion back to the Old Testament. There is even a temple that takes place. There is even the idea that, that the, uh, the temple is restored, extra prophets are given that are different. And during this time period, the Jews are to be the light of the world. The Jews are God's focus. God is worried about the Jews who are being, being attacked. Why? Because it's an Old Testament, the wrap-up to the Old Testament. It's not a church age time. We are removed and for the last week it goes back to a Jewish focus during that time. Give you number nine. Comfort one another. I'm going to comfort you, tell you you're going to have to live through just three and a half years of the tribulation. Uh, But you're going to have to live through it all. I'm not sure that that provides the comfort these people were looking at. The final conclusion is this. The believers in the New Testament... Whether they understood, there had to be some prophecies that were being given by Jesus, like the destruction of Jerusalem, Peter, John growing old, Peter going to die. Despite those predictions, that those things would happen, and God knew exactly when they would happen, and that they would happen in a short period of time. There are multiple verses that clearly give the indication that the believers expected Jesus to come at any moment, at any time. That they had that anticipation. Let me show you that they thought this. Okay? For our citizenship is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior. Teaching us, we should live soberly while we are looking for that blessed hope. This passage. God's going to give a crown of rejoicing to me and to them that love his appearing. To this passage. The coming of the Lord is at hand. Our salvation is nearer than when we believed. You, you, you guys had such a good testimony. You turned from the idols. You're serving the living God, waiting for the Son of God to come from heaven. He goes on, Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together in the clouds. The fact is, 
the pre-tribulation, the the pre-tribulation rapture fits this concept better than any others. That there's nothing yet to happen. It could happen at any moment. They expected at any moment. They didn't, they didn't correct one another. They said he could come back at any moment. At any moment. At any moment he could be coming back. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this any moment idea? Okay. Here's what some, some guy I heard preach. Jesus is coming back. He could come back any moment. When he comes back, it sure looks like he's coming any time. So if I were you, I would go to the bank. I'd borrow all the money you can. I would, I would give, you know, stretch your credit cards and just don't worry about the debt. And if you want to give to my mission agency, go ahead and give it to me. You're not going to, you're not going to be around to have to pay it. The rapture is going to happen. That's exactly what they were, some of the, the people in Thessalonica were saying. Oh, why should we keep on working? He's coming back. He could be coming back any day. So let's stop working. Let's enjoy life while we can because we only have a short time left. And Paul writes and says, he that does not work should not eat. That took care of a welfare program. And so that's not where we respond to this. To say, let's go make debt. Let's go eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we get raptured. That's that's totally opposite of what the Bible says. Totally opposite. In fact, take your Bibles and go to Romans 13. Romans 13. We'll read as we close here. Here's the first thing. If you are here this morning or listening to me and you are not sure you're going to heaven, if I were you, I'd get saved right now. I wouldn't even wait for an invitation. I'd pray and ask Christ to be my Savior right now. Why? Because if the rapture takes place, you could be left behind. You're not going to have time to grab somebody's ankles. You need to get saved. You say, well, I'll wait until I see it happening and then it'll it'll be too late. Now, what happens to you when you're left behind? I don't know. Will you survive? I mean, think about it. When people are raptured, just the initial chaos of airplane pilots disappearing, bus drivers disappearing, surgeons disappearing, there's going to be chaos on the roads. It's going to be phenomenal. Would you survive the initial exit of all the believers? And then you have to contend with the tribulation. You say, well, well, then, then I'll just live for Jesus, but it's going to be so hard. You can do it, but it's going to be so hard. Why not do it while, it's, while the time is easier and it is available and you don't have to put yourself in that spot? Why not get saved today? Why not get saved? Because the Lord could come back. In Romans 13, he writes these comments. In Romans 13. He's, I'm sorry, you're ahead of me on, on getting there. In Romans, he's writing to believers and he's saying, Hey, listen, knowing that the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. What's he saying? Believers. Believers, come on, you've heard about this before, but some of you said, ah, well, I'll wait until later. I'll wait till later to get right with God. It is high time, knowing the time, seeing things. Now is our salvation nearer than, we, whenever we, than when we believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us, therefore, cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Wake up to the reality. It could be today. It could be today. Jesus Christ could come back today. You ready, Bob? Okay, let's do it. Okay. With that in mind, listen to this song about Jesus coming back, and it could be this very moment that he comes back.
In these days so dark and faithless As the plan of God unfolds Christian, won't you help the helpless? Won't you feed their hungry souls? Brother, sister, the time is short now Serve in love, live by faith For the things of earth are passing This could be the day This could be the day That the Lord returns in glory This could be the day That he calls his children home So be faithful in service As you watch and pray For this, oh this This could be the day In these days of desperation When it's so hard to live right Turn away from all temptation You must fight against the night Brother, sister, the time is short now Serve in love, live by faith For the things of earth are passing This could be Are you ready? Are you ready if the Lord were to come back? Is your life one that you say, okay, I'm, I'm bored again. I'm, I'm living a life of righteousness. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. 
you and I need to make sure that we're serving, we're doing our very best, that we're not waiting, that we're not waiting. A few years back in Connecticut, they had a standing order that the state patrolman, that if all of a sudden got bad weather, they were supposed to put chains on the tires so that they could operate better on the roads. Well, this guy was new. And he went out, snow started falling, falling during that day, and he flipped the car. Some passerby called the state barracks and says, hey, I want to report that one of, your, one of your vehicles from one of your state troopers, it's flipped on its hood. And, you know, I want to report the accident. Well, how do you know if the driver's okay? The dispatcher asked. Yeah, yeah, I know. Well, did you get out and look? I don't need to get out and look. I can tell he's okay. Well, how do you know he's okay? He's standing on the bottom now, the roof of the car, and he's putting the chains on the tires. <laughs> it's too late. It's too late. If you're going to witness and share that gospel, you can't do it after the rapture. It's too late. If you're saying, well, I'm going to start living for the Lord, you know, down, down the road, it could be too late. Why not serve Jesus Christ today? Why not give your life to Christ? Your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed, and you would say, oh, Lord, oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you, thank you for this privileged opportunity we have to have this moment to get our hearts right with you. Oh, Lord, if there's one here who's not born again, I pray that even as I pray this prayer, that they would, they would even call upon you. They would even go to the side of the auditorium where guys are going right now, ladies are going to stand by that door on the right side of the auditorium, ready to show them. And if you're here this morning, you're not sure you're saved, get up, go over there, and somebody will show you from the Bible how to be saved. Lord, there may be some who are at home watching this program, and they're not sure that they're on their way to heaven. Please, please, please. Woo them, that they get born again. They contact us and we can explain what they need to pray. For those of us who are born again, help us to remember this could be the day. And it would be great as long as we're right with you. And you've given us this moment to get right with you. Please, Lord, help us to, to bring to our mind anything that is unholy, unpleasant, so we can confess it, we can be right with you. Lord, if there's some individual you want us to get the gospel out, you've prepared their heart, you've, you've moved in them already. Put their, put their mind, put their name in our hearts right now so that we contact them today because this could be the day. This could be the week. This could be the month. We want to be ready.